0: I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career, and one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated ADAPT Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. I'll admit that I'm a little jaded when it comes to holidays and gifts. I've always viewed the holidays as primarily a time to connect and spend time with loved ones, and reflect on everything I'm grateful for and appreciative of. But it seems to me that, at least in rich industrialized countries like the U.S., the holiday season has transformed into an orgy of consumerism, and this can make it difficult to stay connected to the true spirit of the holidays. One way I've addressed this in my life is to focus on giving gifts that I feel will truly make a difference in the recipient's life. I try to choose gifts that uplift, inspire, empower, educate, and generally help people to feel and perform their best. With that in mind, I'm excited to share our first annual holiday gift guide. I've curated a selection of my favorite products from trusted partners. These are the products and services that have made a big impact on my own life and my patients' lives. I can recommend them with confidence because I've experienced their benefits firsthand. I've personally approved every gift in the guide. They've made it through my rigorous selection criteria, which include quality, efficacy, purity, brand values, and supporting research. These are the gifts that keep giving over and over. I hope you enjoy giving them as much as I've enjoyed sharing them with you in the guide. Just go to cresserco slash gift to check it out. That's cresserco slash G-I-F-T. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week's episode is about Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism. And in particular, we're gonna look at common misconceptions about these conditions. And in this case, the misconceptions are actually more common within the integrative and functional medicine or alternative medicine communities than they are in the conventional medical world. So I'm going to be discussing this with Dr. Michael Ruscio. He is a a doctor, clinical researcher, and author who has published studies recently this year on Thyroid health and the gut nutrient thyroid axis, which we're going to be discussing in the show. We're going to talk about why so many people are actually misdiagnosed with hypothyroidism and misprescribed thyroid medication. Uh, We're going to talk about the myth that Hashimoto's always leads to hypothyroidism, or in some cases, uh, has been conflated with hypothyroidism itself. We're going to talk about the critical role that gut health plays in thyroid function and how correcting imbalances in the gut can improve thyroid hormone production, even without medication. Uh, We're going to talk about how gut symptoms can be similar to symptoms of hypothyroidism and how patients can be misdiagnosed with hypothyroidism when they really have underlying gut disorders. We're going to talk about why People with subclinical hypothyroidism should generally not be prescribed thyroid hormone despite the fact that they often are in the integrative and functional medicine community and a whole bunch of other fascinating topics related to thyroid and gut health. So I really enjoyed this episode. I think you will too, especially if you or anyone you know is struggling with hypothyroidism or thinks they might be struggling with hypothyroidism. Let's dive in. Mike, pleasure to have you back on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. Um, You know, for many years as a clinician, when I saw a patient with thyroid issues, um, one of the first things I would be looking at is the gut because of the connection between the gut and the thyroid. So when you reached out and told me about this uh, focus of yours, I was really keen to get you on the show so we can talk a little bit about this. So, you know, how did you... First of all, like what led you down this path?
1: Well, you know, the inception way back when I had an intestinal parasite going back to college. Actually, I think you and I we discussed this before on your show, but we had the same amoeba. Um, And that led me into an interest in gut health. And as you see more and more patients, there's of course this interplay between gut health and thyroid health. And so Progressively, I'd see more patients who either had Hashimoto's or had hypothyroidism. And they were asking, do you think improving my constipation or reflux or leaky gut, whatever, could improve my thyroid? And I started paying more attention to this. And now maybe six-ish years later, there's a few things that we've uncovered that I think people need to know. And as many great facets and discoveries integrative medicine has brought to thyroid care, there might be an equal number of errors that we need to correct because they're, they're harming people. They're wasting their money. They're creating undue fear. And yeah, that, that's what I'm really looking forward to unpacking more today. So
0: you, your research team and yourself have published a couple of papers uh, recently in 2022, um, six uh, patient case studies and, and then a review paper breaking down uh, nutrient gut thyroid relationships. And then the case studies were related to, you know, how the gut thyroid connection actually shows up in clinical practice and and what can be accomplished when you take a holistic approach. So, yeah, why don't we just dive in there? Like, What are are some of the kind of clinical pearls and realizations that you came to in in your practice and then in, in these papers as well?
1: Well, there's maybe half a dozen. The first one, I think we should just better define Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism because part of the story arc is people might be chasing the wrong issue. They They might be looking at thyroid as the cause of all their problems, but it may not actually be. And so let's start with some of the prevalence data, not to get too nerdy into the numbers, but the numbers here really do matter. If you look at the prevalence of Hashimoto's. It's between 5 and 20% of the population has Hashimoto's. And what's interesting is the more discerning you become with the diagnostic criteria, the lower that goes. If we look at just TPO antibodies, it's about 19% of the population. If we cross-reference TPO and examine if there's also evidence of histological changes in the gland with the ultrasound, that drops from 19% to about 5%. And this is likely because antibody testing is imperfect. It's helpful. It's, it's inexpensive. It can be done on a larger scale, but it's not necessarily perfect. But let's look at the fact that, say, generously, 20% of the population has Hashimoto's. Only about 1%, more accurately, a little less, technically 0.3%, has hypothyroidism. So if 20% has Hashimoto's and about 1% has hypothyroidism, that right there tells us that if you have Hashimoto's, we should not be describing it as a, oh my goodness, you will become hypothyroid. The odds are actually quite strongly stacked in your favor that if you have Hashimoto's, you will not develop hypothyroid. Sure, there are things we want to do proactively that I know we are on the same page regarding diet, lifestyle. But I just think from a psychological and a risk perspective, we should make sure to put that out there.
0: Oh, man, uh, I can't tell you how many times I had this conversation <laughs> in my practice. <laughs> and uh, as I know you have as well, where um, people have conflated Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism as if they're the same thing, like you just yes. mentioned. And it, it's what what's true is that, if you have Hashimoto's, you do have a higher risk of moving on to hypothyroidism than someone who doesn't have Hashimoto's. But that risk, as you just pointed out, and the simple numbers can attest, is nowhere near one hundred percent. Not even remotely close.
1: Right? Exactly. In, in fact, it's it's well under fifty percent. And you know why this matters is. And I know you and I uh, agree on so many of these points, which is why it's always awesome checking in with you and unpacking some of this stuff. But let's say gluten. Maybe someone is being told you have Hashimoto's, it's going to turn into hypothyroid. If you have gluten, we know that everyone with hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's should avoid gluten vehemently. And now these people carry this into their social lives and it has a really negative impact on them psychosocially.
0: Yeah, I mean, there can be... A lot of examples of this are, you know, someone who might start AIP because they have, you know, positive thyroid antibodies that are slightly above the reference range. And, you know, for the listeners, AIP, autoimmune protocol, you know, can be a fantastic, effective approach, life-saving even for some, you know, extreme improvements in quality of life for people who have severe autoimmune disease and for whom it works, but could totally be overkill for someone who has no evidence of any clinical disease like hypothyroidism and just mildly elevated thyroid antibodies, which as you pointed out, can be uh, abnormal in in in, in patients with no other symptoms and is not necessarily indicative of a clinical problem. So it's a question of 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 scope and scale here, right? Where yes, like let's 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 match the intervention with the scope and and scale 100%. of the condition.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, very well said. So to your point, also, you know, with the risk, there are some data points that have quantified and tracked people over time to see those who start off with Hashimoto's, how many of them actually convert, and. This prospective follow-up study from Tehran was really the best data point I think we have here. And over their nine-year follow-up, so it's a pretty good follow-up window, between 9% and 19% of people converted to full-blown hypothyroidism. So that gives us an idea of what the risk quantification is. And again, I think this is important because all too often, like you're saying, or you said a moment ago, people conflate the two or they think that if you have Hashimoto's, you're guaranteed to be hypothyroid. And along with this, we can look at the level of antibodies of specifically TPO. That's really the most accurate and the most helpful to quantify your risk. One of the things I discuss in the clinic with our patients is we wanna look at many of these markers on a gradient or on on a scale and not just say, well, anything regarding say, blood glucose above 99 is quote-unquote positive, but we don't talk to a patient who has a 102 fasting blood glucose the same as we do if they have a 182. Those are very different conversations and it seems we don't grade the elevation of TPO antibodies the same way that we do with so many other things like blood sugar or blood pressure. And there was a study, albeit small, it looked at 21 individuals over a six-year follow-up. And they found that only when people had tpo over 500 was there a statistically significant increase in their tsh over time so the researchers concluded that if you have tpo over 500 this was the relevant cutoff that was associated with progression and risk but the other thing that's so important to keep in mind with this study is of those 21 people only one person became hypothyroid so again we have to delineate the TPO over 500 puts you at risk but how at risk are you and it's probably only about 10 or 15% let's just say to use rough approximations
0: yeah i mean this reminds, this is actually an issue in lots of, in other autoimmune uh, pathologies and diagnoses as well like mm-hmm. you know i'm thinking of antinuclear antibodies or ana you know it's it, there, there's a pretty shockingly high percentage of healthy people who have positive ana antibodies and that doesn't mean they have lupus or you know a, a serious rheumatological autoimmune condition it's just there's 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 parts of this that we don't fully understand you know yet i think what 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 the process of antibody production is all about and why someone who doesn't have any clinical symptoms or disease would have antibody production but I do. I really agree with you that there's been almost a kind of hysteria um, around this in functional and integrative medicine world. And it can really, like you said, it can cause a lot of unnecessary stress and anxiety, which of course is not what you want if you're worried about your immune function. So let's talk a little bit about the nutrient um, gut thyroid axis. I, I was really pleased to see this. I wrote an article Many years ago, was actually one of the first series I ever wrote on my website on thyroid health. And I talked about the gut thyroid axis. And now, more recently, I've been really focused on the role of nutrients in health and disease. So I'd love how you pulled this together into the n- nutrient thyroid gut axis or, right. or whatever combination or order of those terms that you're preferring. <laughs> right.
1: Right. So, yeah, tell us about that. Well, yeah, so this is one of the other components. So you know, when, when we start looking at how important gut health is as it pertains to thyroid function, absorption obviously becomes center stage in that conversation. And just as a quick sort of tangential tie in, if someone is true hypothyroid, they may still be struggling because they are inconsistently or um, incorrectly absorbing their thyroid medication. And this has been well documented that in people who have ibs or ulcers or inflammatory bowel disease or an active h pylori infection the reason why their tsh is up and down or their thyroid levels are up and down or their dose keeps modulating they just can't get everything right with their lab work could be inconsistent malabsorption And that malabsorption also ties to things like b12 and iron and what's so important about this in an area i know you've discussed quite a bit is that you could be chasing thyroid hormone medication as the cause for let's say your fatigue your brain fog your poor exercise tolerance wherein it could actually be a b12 deficiency or an iron deficiency just as two that might be driving that so the you know the importance of the gut here uh, it, it's it's so prominent and something I, I think more patients need to be considering maybe also when taking into the context of do you first fine tune your thyroid levels or do you look to make sure you have a nutrient dense diet and healthy absorption of those nutrients? And I would argue it should be the latter first because it's far more prevalent that we'll see a need for nutrients than it is for this uber fine tuning of the levels of T4 and T3, let's say.
0: Absolutely. And I know, I, I imagine you've had similar experience where Even, you know, treating people for GI, uh, undetected GI conditions like a parasite, SIBO, you know, disrupted gut microbiome, I would very often see, warn patients that they may need to, to watch carefully their thyroid levels and thyroid medication because as their gut health improved, their thyroid function would improve, and then the dose of the medication that yes. they were on would often be too high. And yeah, so they it's such a wonderful they thing to... to have to warn them about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, right? You, you may need to reduce the dose of your medication as we fix your gut because, and there's probably multiple things happening there, right? There, we're the, increasing the absorption of nutrients that improve thyroid function. We're decreasing intestinal permeability, which reduces inflammation, which inflammation can suppress the con- conversion of T4 to T3. Uh, there's so many different mechanisms that we already know about and probably a lot that we don't even know about that regulate that gut
1: thyroid axis. Exactly, exactly. And it's also, I think, important to mention that there's a tremendous amount of overlap between the symptoms of hypothyroidism and symptoms of suboptimal gut health, fatigue, brain fog, insomnia, and constipation constipation, right? Abdominal pain, um, even dry skin, thinning hair. And this is another area kind of coming back to your comment about thyroid hysteria. I just have so many concerns that people are barking up the wrong tree. They're going thyroid, 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 and they're missing the fact that their fatigue, their brain fog, their dry hair or skin could be due to what's going on in their gut.
0: Yeah. I mean, and we can extend that to so many other systems of the body too, right? <laughs> yeah. um, metabolism, even cardiovascular health, hormone balance, brain health, cognitive function. There really is a profound connection between the gut and all of these systems. And yeah. it, it only seems to increase, you know, as, as science progresses and we get more data through, you know, full full um, sequencing of the microbiome and just understanding those relationships more, uh it, our understanding has just grown over time of how how much of a driver gut health is to overall health. So let's talk a little bit about the the this you know more specific um, nutrients that p- you mentioned iron and B twelve uh, as part of the nutrient GI thyroid axis. What what other nutrients should people be thinking about?
1: Well, I'll, and one quick thing maybe on the iron. Um there's there's discussion and debate regarding what an optimal ferritin level is. This researcher, Sapi, I believe is the pronunciation in Finland, he's been proposing that ferritin should not be below 100. And so some in case some people have been confronted with this, we are finding at the clinic that a ferritin target of 100, it, it's too high, it's not practical. But if we can get ferritin to 30 or above, or said another way, if people are below 30, either increase their iron intake in their diet or supplement them, that is the cutoff that's most likely to experience or, or lead to a symptomatic improvement based upon uh, you know fatigue or, or whatever is shifting. So I just wanna uh, plant that one footnote. I'm not sure, have you been trying to figure out what the best ferritin cutoff is on your side, yeah. Chris?
0: Well, I think, you know, also, I- you know, iron overload has been a big focus for for me in my career and and how often that that is uh, underdiagnosed and underrecognized. And so I get kind of nervous when I hear about a minimum level of 100, especially in women, you know, because the the baseline ferritin levels in men and women can differ. And uh, 100 for ferritin is actually quite, I would consider be a borderline high. Uh, for, for women, uh, especially if they're supplementing with iron. So yeah, I would agree with you that um, I would see improvements and changes if I brought ferritin from 15 to 30 or uh, 35, but I wouldn't see any change from, you know, much of a change from 35 to 60, for example. Right. I do know that I, I think there is some individual variation. Uh, I have, I've definitely had patients who would notice a difference going from 30 to 60. But I don't think we can make that a
1: general rule. Yeah, agreed. And I was excited about the prospect of, hey, maybe these suboptimal ferritin levels are holding the key to these non-responsive symptoms. And so we were really tracking this meticulously uh, because I know, as you do, we prefer a nutritional solution when we can. But yeah, that may have been too aggressive. Excellent point also on the iron overload. Uh, like so many things, there's this Goldilocks zone, you know, more is definitely not better. It's, it's the, the right balance that we want to uh, strike. So, to your to your earlier question about other nutrients, there's a number, but two that I think are important to keep in mind are selenium and anositol. And selenium, I'm sure your audience has heard, has the, uh, well, multifold impact, but one of lowering TPO antibodies. And there has been a few trials looking at subclinical hypothyroidism. So this is where the TSH starts to drift up into the positive range. It goes above the upper cutoff of 4.5 to maybe 5, 6, 7, 9. And selenium plus myo has been shown very effective in helping increase the likelihood that someone will see their TSH go back to normal. And this could be because selenium is anti-inflammatory uh, as it is inositol. Inositol may actually help with improving sensitivity of the thyroid gland to TSH signaling, in inositol, and then selenium is an antioxidant. Uh, So those two, I think, are important to keep in mind. And people can target those in their diet via a number of, you know, and this is why having a non-heretical position on diet can be helpful. But, you know, there are a number of foods that are rich in both of those. So I'll, I'll offer those as two for people to consider that are more so through the lens of autoimmunity
0: let's talk amino acids for a moment on my recent episode why amino acids are the building blocks of life i discuss why we need amino acids at all stages of life and how key on aminos can help you live a long active healthy life to truly understand just how vital amino acids are for health think about your body and what it's made of you've probably heard before that it's made up of mostly water what you probably haven't heard is that everything else in your body is 50 percent amino acids These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. This is why Kian Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Kian Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lead muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, you need to get Kian Aminos. You can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkeon.com/cresser. That's g e t k i o n.com/cresser to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Keon Aminos. To live your healthiest, longest life, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds, and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add inner age 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Kresser. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Kresser. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and Selenium, as you mentioned, it, it can be particularly important for Hashimoto's in part because it it supports glutathione production and glutathione helps regulate immune function and reduce autoimmunity. And, you know, in the U.S., a lot of, true selenium deficiency is rare when you look at the statistics, but I, I think it's, I've also seen studies, I'm curious what you think of this, that people who have Hashimoto's and antibody production may require slightly higher levels of selenium intake than, you know, the general population.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. and, you know, the other thing we can juxtapose this with is, well, what happens when people, you know, free living humans in the U S are diagnosed with Hashimoto's, and then they supplement with 200 micrograms per day of selenium, let's say, and not all the studies agree, but there's clearly a sign of benefit. But the other part of this is, if you look at some of the studies that track selenium supplementation for three, six, nine, twelve 12 months, the benefit from selenium tends to drop off around three to nine months. So it's probably something that might get them to this sort of optimal topping off of the tank, so to speak. But I think it's important to clarify, people with Hashimoto should not be supplementing with selenium in perpetuity.
0: Yeah, or high doses. Um, Selenium is one of those nutrients that is toxic at higher doses. And, And if you take too much selenium over time, like you said, we can store it up and it can be problematic it's not like vitamin c or b12 which don't really have much uh, a toxicity threshold that we're aware of it's more like vitamin a and other nutrients that an iron calcium etc you can get in trouble with if you take too
1: much right right and of course there's vitamin d i'm, I'm sure everyone at this point is, is probably aware of the importance of vitamin d and i think you and i Chris, are on the same page that we should be looking at vitamin d as something to predominantly get from the sun and then you know using our lifestyle as a lever for that and then supplementing secondarily to that and also being careful not to be too heavy on the gas pedal with your vitamin d supplementation every once in a while we'll see someone whose vitamin d level is 90 100 110 125 (laughs) yeah and and you know again it's it's the same sort of thinking where um, more is better more supplements more dietary restriction, and you know, I think we should kind of try to invert that, where we should be looking to expand our diet and eat as nutrient dense of a diet as we can, and really use as supplements as minimally as possible. And this is more able to be done, I think, when people don't have this heretical view on autoimmunity, like "Oh my God, I've got to like." Go so high in vitamin D and selenium because I still have TPO antibodies that are 100. And I heard if you know I have any antibodies, if, if I'm not at zero, it means I'm at risk. And you know that that whole sort of uh, paradigm is sort of this self feeding cycle of overzealously interpreting labs, doubling down on your supplements, going too restrictive with your diet, and that's what I again I appreciate about your perspective, Chris, because you're you know I think we're both on the same page where we're trying to give people the tools but make sure that they're not overusing the tools.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that happens, I know we've talked about this before, in the search for a solution, which is totally understandable. And, you know, we've both dealt with our own chronic health problems. We know what that's like. We know how frustrating it can be to not have a solution. And then if you get a lab result that comes back with some kind of signal, it's very natural and understandable that we would, tend to kind of latch onto that as the answer, right? So you got a patient who has these symptoms, fatigue, you know, constipation, malaise, depression, you know, dry skin, all of that. And then you get a positive, you know, a, a, a positive thyroid antibody test with or without, you know, slight difference in uh, elevation of TSH it's pretty easy to then just be like, I found the answer. This is it. Yep. You know, now yep. now if I correct this, everything's going to get better. And, you know, I don't blame patients for that. It, it, even clinicians, it, it's understandable, but oftentimes that leads us in the wrong direction, right? Mm-hmm. As you mm-hmm. pointed out in this, in this podcast, that maybe it's really more of a gut issue in that case. And you know, taking thyroid medication just because you have slightly elevated thyroid antibodies and a slightly elevated TSH with normal T4 and T3 is not the best option. So let's talk about that because I think you and I agree on this as well. I, there's a growing trend I've seen, or, or at least saw over the past several years in my practice, where I would see patients coming in that were prescribed thyroid medication for subclinical hypothyroidism. So this when their TSH was slightly elevated, but their free T3 and free T4 were totally normal. And my thinking there was, why? (laughs) What is the, if the the thyroid medication's goal is to raise thyroid hormones, right? And if thyroid hormones are already in the normal or optimal range, you know, why is a thyroid medication being prescribed? What does the research say about this?
1: I, I completely agree with you, Chris. It's so important for us to mention that subclinical hypothyroidism in the vast majority of cases, a, like we discussed a moment ago, corrects itself all on its own. You can increase those odds with selenium and my but B does not benefit from treatment. And, and we've looked at this up, down, left, right and center, unless you're very young and very young, the definitions there vary from study to study, but we're talking in your teens, maybe in your early twenties, but unless you're very young, people do not benefit symptomatically from medication. Now, there's also been some discussion that those who have a history of infertility may benefit from using, let's say, levothyroxine to take their TSH from seven down to two. However, a recent meta-analysis challenged that. So even for that cohort, there may not be benefit from using thyroid hormone. You will see some reduction in cholesterol, but I don't think the potential risk associated with using thyroid hormone that you don't need is worth the minimal reduction in lipids. But just to play devil's advocate, that would be the devil's advocate argument. Well, what about my mildly elevated lipids? You're not gonna see a massive change and no endocrine bodies are recommending to use thyroid hormone replacement in perpetuity for the rest of the person's life for subclinical hypothyroidism and definitely not for those who have elevated lipids because there are better ways to address that. So yeah, this is one of the, the the main gripes I have with the field is people are often told, well, your TSH should be at 2.5 or at 2. And what happens here, I think it's all well-intentioned, but it, it's definitely incorrect. Providers sometimes look at the goal for when you are medicating an individual who's hypothyroid and the goal when someone is true hypothyroid and we're medicating them is to get their tsh down to 2.5 or to 2. but we can't conflate that and say that therefore everyone should have a tsh of 2 to 2.5 and if you're above that you're hypothyroid you know you're Thyroid function is totally fine if your TSH is 3, 3.5, 4, 4.5, even if your TSH is 6, 7, 8, 9. The level at which TSH will benefit TSH elevations indicate someone should go on hormone that they'll benefit from therapy is when you get above 10. Some recent estimates are suggesting maybe 7. When you're in this ballpark, this transitional zone from TSH being between seven and 10, that's when someone might benefit from thyroid hormone. But these poor people who are being put on hormone who have a five or six, a seven for the TSH, it's not the right play. And and this was corroborated by a recent meta-analysis that found that 37% of people were on thyroid hormone who did not need to be, meaning they were able to come off hormone and they were tracked over a six to eight week period and their TSH and their T4 maintained totally normal levels after stopping thyroid hormone, 37% of people. That's shocking. Now, if, if we factored in a functional medicine cohort into that analysis. It would probably be more like this paper from Greece from 2018, published in the journal Thyroid, that found 61% of individuals were incorrectly diagnosed. And a lot of this, Chris, to your question, a lot of this incorrect diagnosis, I think, comes from overzealously prescribing thyroid hormone for subclinical hypothyroidism. And then this person, let's say his name is John, he goes and sees a different healthcare provider two years later the healthcare provider reviews his history. Oh, you're hypothyroid. Oh, you're on Levo. Okay. And no one questions it. So it just gets buried in their chart and no one says, hang on a second. How were you diagnosed? Who diagnosed you? What was the lab work looking like at time of diagnosis? And I can say that at our clinic, we now have this as part of our intake paperwork. Are you hypothyroid? who diagnosed you if it was an integrated provider that throws up a big flag. We asked to see the labs that diagnosed them, meaning from before they went on thyroid hormone and you would be shocked. The number of people who are walking around thinking they're hypothyroid and they're actually not again, corroborated by two great papers recently. One at meta analysis, finding that 37% of people do not need to be on hormone that they're on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not shocked, of course, because I've, I've had that same experience and we have the same type of paperwork. And, you know, it would, it, the conversation would also go towards, okay, you know, was it just TSH that was measured? Did they also measure T4 and T3, free T4 and T3? What were those results? Was there, multi, was there serial testing done? Because I'm, I'm sure you came across this in your research, we now know that TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, which is oftentimes the only marker that's tested in a conventional setting, has a diurnal rhythm. So it actually fluctuates throughout the day. And I saw one study, this was a while ago, I haven't looked into it recently, but I saw one study that said you'd have to do something like 30 tests of TSH over a, a several day period to get a true mean, a true average re- reliable result, because it's actually fluctuating that much throughout the day. So you imagine someone who goes to the doctor, they get a single TSH reading, a single moment in time, which is high, and then get our prescribed thyroid hormone as a result of that, there, then there, you know, there might be retesting, there might not be. I've had patients who were prescribed thyroid hormone just on that basis and then yeah. took it for years without ever being retested, without ever having a T4 or T3 test or pre-T4 or T3 test. And then you know, it's really hard at sometimes to convince those folks that that was not really necessarily an evidence-based decision um, because Mm -hmm. they've adopted the mentality of, I have hypothyroidism, I need this medication, I can't stop it now or else bad things are going to happen.
1: Well, you know, one, I guess, ray of optimism from this meta-analysis was that the time on thyroid hormone did not predict if people could successfully discontinue their medication or not so just as one point of solace for the audience if you've been on hormone for five years ten years what have you incorrectly um, that doesn't mean that your body's built up a dependency
0: right that's really important and i want to uh, talk a little bit about the flip side of that too so one of the objections that I hear, I've heard over the years with patients who I think were incorrectly diagnosed with hypothyroidism and in, you know, incorrectly prescribed thyroid hormone is they'll say, you know, but, but, but I have more energy or it makes me feel better. And my response is, well, cocaine would do that too, but it doesn't really mean that that's the solution to your problem. Right. You know, it's like uh, thyroid hormone has a, As a medication it it will increase your thyroid hormone levels and that will have certain physiological effects regardless of whether you're hypothyroid right Uh, depending on the person and so just because it produces a certain effect in the body doesn't that doesn't in and of itself justify its use particularly over a long period of time
1: yes i'm completely completely agreed and You know, well, on the one hand, yes, it's important, in my opinion, very important to listen to the individual because you learn so, so much from listening to people. We also have to factor in for placebo and for the fact that oftentimes people start on multi-interventional care plans. So they could have improved their diet, gone on curcumin, vitamin D, fish oil and a probiotic and started taking thyroid hormone all at the same time. And they may have falsely attributed all the benefit or most of the benefit to the thyroid hormone. And then coming back to placebo, even in studies where people know they are being given a placebo, they still report benefit. So, you know, all those things, I feel are very important to keep in mind, I leave a small crack in the door for maybe there's a very tiny subset of people that feel better, almost using thyroid hormone like an anti-aging support, but I think it's, it's gotta be incredibly small and more likely it's placebo or the other interventions that the person has utilized. It's also important to mention that thyroid hormone to, you know, as you kind of intonated is not without risk. A recent study found that the combination formulas of T4 and T3 can in some cases increase the risk of stroke and cardiovascular. There's another cardiovascular outcome. I don't know if it was heart attack or stroke, but there was a 1.6 and 1.7% increased risk of, uh, let's say stroke and heart attack. I may have the, the the, uh, outcome slightly off, but they're generally representative of two things you don't want to have. And as a, a juxtaposition, the risk associated with smoking for those conditions is about 2%. So it's not to say that's a nominal amount of risk. Now, I also want to be careful to say I'm not advocating that anyone who is feeling good on something like a desiccated hormone stop it, but it's just to impress the point that these medications aren't without any risks. And we certainly see people in the clinic who are on thyroid hormone who don't need to be. And when you look at their symptoms, it's like, geez you are fatigued, you have insomnia, you have heart palpitations. Yeah, this sounds a whole heck of a lot like overdose because remember also, I know you know this, Chris, but for your audience, that too much thyroid hormone as in hyperthyroidism, that can make you tired. And it's always so disheartening when someone's been struggling with symptoms for a couple of years because they're on hormone that they don't need to be on.
0: Yeah, I liken that to coffee, right? You know, a lot of people, I've had the experience where coffee will create a temporary lift in energy levels, you know, just after you drink it. But then, in the morning, in the afternoon, if you have had too much coffee, you feel like you got hit by a truck. And uh, excess thyroid hormone can do that too, because essentially it's goosing the system, you know. And the, and and you can't you can't do that endlessly without paying the price at some point. So yeah, I definitely appreciate you you bringing that in. So let's kind of, um, I want to kind of bring this back to like, how should someone think about this? So I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and now have questions, you know, about their own diagnosis, um, you know, whether they were accurately diagnosed, whether they should be taking the medication that they're taking. What are some questions that uh, folks can can ask their provider to help clarify this?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think building a, a checklist is, is incredibly helpful here. I would, uh, you know, some of these things you may or may not want to ask your provider, but you know, um, <laughs> who, who diagnosed you, if the person who diagnosed you is a in the box conventional medical provider, then this is one thing I think conventional medicine is doing quite well. If you were diagnosed by a conventional medical doctor who's practicing an integrative and functional care, or any type of integrated provider, unfortunately, and and no offense to any of my colleagues, this raises suspicion significantly that you could have been misdiagnosed. I would obtain the labs, if you can, that diagnosed you and look to see if your TSH and your free T4 are within the lab ranges of the conventional labs, not what the provider writes in not the functional medicine ranges, but look to see, you know, were you flagged high with TSH and flagged low for T4. And if you weren't, then you might be on hormone that you don't need. Of course, don't change anything without checking with a healthcare provider. Uh, The other thing to consider is your digestive health. Do you still have any lingering GI symptoms? If you do, this could be the source of most of your symptoms. And also remember, as I learned myself, it is possible to have a silent gastrointestinal problem that's only manifesting neurologically, dermatologically, rheumatologically, meaning it's causing fatigue, brain fog, insomnia, joint pain, skin issues. So just because you don't have digestive symptoms does not guarantee your gut health is in good shape. It might still be worth doing a trial on something like a probiotic or another gut intervention. Uh, and also remember that the odds are are really well stacked in your favor. That if you have Hashimoto's, it's not a sentence to hypothyroidism. In fact, you probably won't become hypothyroid. And hopefully, that knowledge will help people be a little bit more, I guess, self-supportive and liberal with their diet. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that you want to go have pizza and beer every night, but I'd love for you to be able to have pizza and beer when you want and not feel like you're burning your thyroid gland with information when you do that. Of course, unless you notice a very clear aversion uh, to those foods. Yeah, I think that that's a, a, a short list. And, right. and Sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say uh, also consider other possibilities, which you have – I mean, that's kind of the whole point of this <laughs> show, which is – the gut, you know, like uh, is 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 it has it been a misdiagnosis in the sense that maybe the key issue has not been the thyroid all along, or even if the thyroid is not functioning optimally, could it be not the root cause of what's going on? The gut is actually the root cause, and the thyroid dysfunction is really just a symptom of that underlying problem and you know so so maybe that's another avenue of exploration for people to look into alternative causes of, the, of those symptoms or, or signs
1: yes yes 100 percent. and that's the six patient case series that we published in integrative medicine a clinicians journal where we wanted to share with providers our learning curve where you know th- there's one great case study where we tried Four different perturbations of medications. And, and there, there's a really nifty, if I may say so myself, a really nifty chart where you can see this patient's TSH levels. And we plot the different interventions with different thyroid medications that were trialed. And the TSH just is not getting to where it needs to be. And then finally, she's given triple therapy probiotic, antimicrobial herbs, and immunoglobulin therapy. And there's no change to her thyroid hormone. And her TSH finally goes into range, and there's just so many cases where we've learned that we have to address gut health either either as the true cause of the symptoms or the reason why the person's not responding to thyroid medication to begin with.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's it, it, this might seem a little bit discouraging in some ways for people who are listening because it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, you know. It's especially if you felt like you've already kind of arrived at the diagnosis and we're clear about it. And, um, but it it is really true that it pays to be your own advocate and, and it's really important to be a critical thinker about this kind of thing, whether you're a patient or, or a clinician and not just accept the first explanation that's offered, really dig in and, you know, think, think in a methodical way about it. Like. Uh, that that's never a bad idea in my experience whether you're a clinician or a patient because and, and it's it's not like I, I mean i want to be good this is my perspective i imagine you agree but let me know if you don't it's not like people who are making these diagnoses have any ulterior motives you know they they're uh trying to help in in most cases and and yes. it's just that there has been some unfortunate, Misinformation or, or you know misunderstandings around these things and and in science in general and medicine is is part of science. Uh, there's an evolution that happens over time where our understanding improves and that's what this is about. We're not throwing anyone under the bus here, whether yes. you're a patient or a clinician. We're just trying to help clarify what the research has really illuminated over the past few years and, and so that people can. Hopefully, really get to the bottom of what's causing their their symptoms and and find a solution that works and is safe over the long term.
1: Yes, we're all on the same team, clearly, right? We're all on the same team. We're all trying to get either better ourselves if we're patients, as I myself was, and I guess I still am, right? I'm always trying to improve how I'm feeling, or as healthcare providers. But it's also really important that we can be okay with the fact that our field is not gonna have everything right all the time. And I would offer that for people who, because every once in a while we'll come across a clinician who kind of digs their heels in. And when we're offering up a new and different hypothesis, it's almost as if you're attacking their worldview. And it's like, whoa, like, you know, we should be open and constantly reappraising these things because the probability that we're right on everything is extremely low. So if we're not right about everything, there are going to be some things we're wrong on and we should embrace that because the faster we get to those realizations, the better we are clinically and the more expeditiously we can help patients to improve. So yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I'm glad you said that we're all on the same team. There's a few things I think in the model of functional thyroid care that were interesting initial hypotheses, but now we have enough data to re-examine those and kind of course correct how we're talking about this and how we're doing our diagnostic workups in our corresponding care plans.
0: As I've said in the past, the history of science is the history of most people being wrong about most things most of the time. <laughs> just, yeah. That's just the truth, objectively true. You yeah. know, if you look at it, and of course, at every point in history, every we, you, have, you have people who you know, most people, most of the people who live at that time think that that was only true of the past and not uh, in the present. And, right. <laughs> you know, but it's going to be different this time. I mean, and certainly yeah. you knowledge, I think uh, objectively, progress does happen over time. And we are probably overall, it's, it's true that we're more, I, I think our understanding is more accurate overall now than it was 100 years ago. And that will be true. 100 years from now as well mm-hmm. but it's pure hubris to think that yes as you said that we know all of the answers and i just it strikes me how i mean this is a little bit of a tangent but it, it, physicists get this right physicists are like gleeful and excited when they find out they're wrong because <laughs> that that means yeah. that there's something missing in their fundamental understanding of how the universe works and world works whether we're talking about the quantum level or the more macro level i think of all physicists or of all science scientists physicists really are have the most pure approach to science really understanding that everything is just a hypothesis that we're trying to prove wrong you never get to full 100% proof and when we find out that we're wrong, that's that's actually an exciting opportunity to, to, to get closer to the truth. And if, if only we embrace that in medicine and yes. healthcare. But I think it that can be a little jarring for people. Like I, I've tried to explain this to patients and it's one thing when you're talking about the Higgs boson particle and you know, which doesn't really affect people's <laughs> right. daily yeah. life. But if you're talking about their, their their symptoms and how you know their health, I can understand why people get frustrated with that, you know, with changing ideas and, and, and um, practices over time. But really that's the reality. That's if if we want to be honest and intellectually have integrity about our practice, that's, that's how it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. One of my mantras is try to be less wrong. (laughs) And I think that's, (laughs) that's, it's really helpful to think about things that way. And also on the clinical side, the way we try to communicate this with our patients and, and think through the problems is there's no black or white, right or wrong. But with all of these things, we're just assigning a certain probability to them. And when you look at these things as probability gradients, it you, you don't fall into this absolutist. Well, you know, this thing good or bad, or this diagnosis right or wrong, but rather, well, there's a seventy percent chance it could be this, and we're going to continue to look and listen at how your symptoms evolve and with more data will either progressively prove or disprove this hypothesis and this is such a freeing way of reframing clinical care because again you, you really get out of this binary or this false choice of right or wrong and you're always just trying to turn the the direction of what you're doing clinically based upon these shifting probabilities
0: absolutely and and that's i mean you Mentioned this briefly earlier on. I want to highlight it because it's it's one of my pet peeves as, as about the conventional view. you can look at that same thing when it comes to lab ranges and diagnoses. It's a question of probability and and scales. You know, it's not a it's usually not a binary yes or no. Even when you have a lab result that's pointing in a certain direction, you almost always have to put that in the larger clinical context and yeah. consider symptoms and history and
1: Call risk factors. And, yeah.
0: you know, exactly. And it's not like, oh, you know, your, your, your fasting glucose is 98, that's just fine. Now it's 99, okay, you have prediabetes and now we're going right. to mobilize and do something about it. You know, right. there, there, Nothing in nature works like that, including the human body. So it's just a good reminder in general, whether we're talking about, you know our accuracy of, of, of our diagnostic framework or whether we're talking about lab test results is you know approaching it with a, an attitude of curiosity and, and uh, exploration and, and willingness to be wrong and keep learning i think we'll all end up in a better at a better destination when we do that yep so Mike, I, I love this, really appreciate you and your perspective and your great work in these areas. Uh, where can people learn more about your work and and these the, the studies as well?
1: The studies, um, they're in PubMed, so they're indexed in PubMed. And if you go to DrRucho.com, that's that's our hub website that has access points for everything else we did recently release a course on this. I really want to be able to give people a way of going through this checklist, so to speak, without having to go see a doctor in case it was financially out of their reach. You know, I am in the clinic and, and we do have a great team of doctors. If anyone needs direct clinical care, there's also the course as a lower cost to entry point. And then these papers and, and a bunch of other stuff is available through the main website, drruscio.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com.
0: Fantastic. Thanks again, Mike. Always a pleasure to speak with you and congrats on the publications and the great work.
1: Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Let's, let's, uh, let's do it again soon. It's always fun catching up with you.
0: Absolutely. And thanks everybody for listening. Hope this was helpful. Keep sending your questions at com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of revolution health radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscressor.com slash You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash or facebook.com slash I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.